Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. On today's show, we are venturing deep into the leafy Oxfordshire countryside. Here, tucked away along a leafy lane, is an impressively state-of-the-art studio and arts production facility built by the composer Max Richter and his partner, the artist Julia Marr. Max Richter's work, sitting at the ambient end of classical, can be heard on the stage. He's composed for operas, ballets and plays. On screen, his music has appeared in films like Waltz with Bashir and Shutter Island, as well as TV shows such as Black Mirror, and in his eight solo albums, of course. Possibly the most ambitious of these is the 2015 work Sleep, 31 compositions totaling eight and a half hours of gentle music designed to last the length of a night's rest, if you're lucky. It's clear on arriving at Studio Richtemar that every last detail has been considered in the design, creating a space so serene it felt like even I might be on the brink of a creative breakthrough here. As we wander through the grounds, we come across shepherd huts that resident composers and artists call home during their stay, a pizza oven for team get-togethers, as well as a chicken coop and extensive on-site kitchen garden. The entire project is powered by solar energy, meaning that the minimalism of Studio Richter's design is matched by its featherlight impact on the environment. Back inside, in the control room of the studio, we sat down with Max, fresh from his Glastonbury debut, where we wowed the crowd with an elegant performance which included spoken word from none other than the actor Tilda Swinton. Everyone carries a room about inside them. This fact can even be proved by means of the sense of hearing. If someone walks fast and one pricks one's ears and listens, say at night, when everything around about is quiet. One hears, for instance, the rattling of a mirror not quite firmly fastened to the wall. Well, Max, thank you so much for having us. I'm in your wonderful sort of shared production space here in an undisclosed region of rural Oxfordshire. Tell us a little bit about where we are and your plan for this wonderful space. Yeah, we're in Studio Richtemar, which is the space I share with my partner, Yulia. This is the outcome of 20 years of fantasizing about building a production facility outside of the city in nature, connecting to nature. And we were fortunate enough to come across uh, an old alpaca farm, which is one of these big metal sheds you see all over the countryside where people store tractors and things. So it's not as funny as it sounds now, Packer Farm. It's just, I feel like there's lots of furry heads sort of peeping over a hedge at your arrival, wondering what's going to happen to them next. There were alpacas. There were, yes, exactly. So, so the person who owned it before was apparently the queen of alpaca farming in the UK. So we discovered this place and we saw the opportunity to, in a sense, upcycle this building into something else. So we kept the external footprint, we, ex- we kept the concrete and the steel frame, and we renewed everything inside. And what we now have is we have production studios, so music, uh, fine art production studios, office facilities, programming rooms, a mix room, an orchestral recording room, and a cafe. 
and various other bits and bobs. So really you have a kind of multimedia production in a wood uh, or in a rural setting. So for us, this is a, it kind of symbolizes an ambition to connect creativity with a kind of forward-looking ecological standpoint. You know, the building is very low carbon, uh, so it's all powered from the roof via heat pumps. We've uh, recycled a lot of original materials. We've used, you know, local trades. Um, we grow all our food, these kinds of things. So everything is sort of viewed in a very holistic way, and we've tried to make the processes in the building really add up to something. I'd like to point out to listeners that Max uh, has not walked in in a muddy welly. <laughs> We have a we have a smart sneaker on today, but I'm sure I'm sure they are exercised. I'd like to come back to the space and some of the ambitions and, and your hopes for it a little bit later in our chat. But talking of getting back to the land, I wanted to talk to you about last weekend and your performance uh, of the Blue Notebooks at, at Glastonbury. That was a seemed to be a very wonderful, magical. Slightly early morning for some for some revelers, moment at Glastonbury, moment of calm. Tilda Swinton reprising her role on the album. I understand for the first time, in person, live. How was the audience that day? Because your so many of your works are quite audience specific, I suppose. What how are they uh, uh, that Saturday or Sunday morning uh, in Somerset? Well, the Glastonbury audience is very eclectic. It's very open-eared. You know, I mean, I think that's something that a festival. That the festival encourages so you get people who are there for all kinds of different things and they're willing to be surprised you know that's one of the joys of going to a festival isn't it you you get unexpected things and the audience on uh, saturday well they were great actually uh like you said i mean 11 a.m is quite an ask for a you know after they've all been up sort of friday night raving but it was a wonderfully focused wonderfully attentive and appreciative audience and also Loads of people came. It was absolutely full, um, which was kind of a surprise because, uh, you know, it was very early start. Um, but we had a great time. Um, yeah, there was a real feeling of people paying attention and listening and concentration. So, yeah, it was great. I have to, I say, that, I have to say that even came through through the TV screen, how I watched it. Um, and, and, yeah, on, on that sense of, of that audience bringing something to your performance... How important is it? I'm thinking of some of your work, your sleep work, which is done in public spaces, galleries, nightclubs, that were sort of decommissioned for a night, a whole night, we should say. So you think about the audience a lot, it seems, in your work, um, in certain some of your works. How far do the audience have to put into a performance? What was the ratio, I wonder, between your performance, especially if you're playing it yourself, and, and what the audience brings? Well, I... I think, you know, creative works, when you put them out in the world, they are unfinished um, in the sense that it really doesn't exist until somebody brings their biography to it. And then you have a unique conversation between that the thing you've made and that person listening and their experience. And that can be a really exciting moment for me because then I learn a lot about what I've made. And obviously you multiply that by, you know, thousands of people listening. And then you have a situation where it's very rich, it's very interesting. Um, and, you know, the piece takes on sort of different forms depending on who's listening, I think. And I'm very interested in that idea. 
do you you look up over the you look up from the piano and you glance at what people are doing how they're moving how they're responding how kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed their attitude to the music is i suppose does that ever inform the composition process does that does that ever when you open up your notebook in a morning when it's a composition day does that does that inform that i wonder well, that sort of memory of, yeah, of performance. I mean, you, you definitely, when you're playing, you definitely get a sense of how it's, how it's kind of landing out there, you know? I mean, certainly on Saturday, you know, pretty much immediately, I, I kind of had this feeling that, oh, you know, they're, they're into it. You know, you could tell straight away, really. Mm. And that experience, yeah, it does inform the kind of trajectory of, of, of a project. I mean, you know, when I'm making a record... I mean, I guess, first of all, is that, you know, the first thing is I am actually making a record rather than just a track and then another track and then another track. You know, I I do think of an arc of there being a kind of a, yeah, a trajectory and some kind of interplay between different kinds of energies across a time span. So, yeah, you know, I'm trying to make something which feels like you know, something will lead to something else, which will lead to something else. It's a novelistic it approach. Is, yeah. I mean, it's what they, you know, people used to call, talk about concept albums, didn't they? I mean, it's kind of like that. Well, one man's lamb lies down on Broadway is another man's, yeah, S- tranquility base. Let's go there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I'm so I'm trying to, you know, I, I, I kind of, I suppose we all do the things creatively that we ourselves enjoy in other creative works. And, you know, I like to be transported. I like to have a sense of entering an alternate reality when I'm listening to a piece of music or watching a movie or reading a novel. You know, I want I want a kind of intense, involving experience. And so that's the sort of work I'm interested in making. Yeah. So, it's, so yes, it can be reactive, I guess, in the moment, mm. or it can be a piece of work that has almost a job I suppose, like yeah. like your sleep album, yeah. sleep album. Mm. That's a naive word to use, perhaps. But t- tell us about that, because obviously that mm. the audience interaction are for your sleep record and project, mm. which also kind of is a phys- very physical project, mm. or, uh, yeah. you know, an artwork as mm. much as a piece of music. What was a sign of its success? Was it to have everyone nod off at 3, 3 a.m.? I, I wonder how, how you judged the success or otherwise of that, or it was yeah. just a sort of anthropological... experiment well i mean sleep is a yeah it's a project which combines a kind of creative aesthetic uh agenda i guess you know a sort of purely artistic with a sort of utility dimension and i'm kind of interested in that idea you know i mean we have you know historically we've always had music with a function you know whether it's dance music or music for going to war or music for getting married, or you know, all these different things. Lullabies, of course. So, so it has this sort of dual character. When we started to play the piece live, that was pretty interesting because we had to really recalibrate our expectations of what a live performance is. Because normally you're trying to connect in a very direct way, and you're trying to sort of communicate and reach out and all of this. And we kind of started with that idea, but then. You know, when you look out, there's 500 people lying in beds and you think, hang on, this is, we've got this sort of backwards. And it, ultimately, it, we settled on a way of performing sleep where 
where actually the musicians and the performance are not the main thing. It really reverses the sort of power structure. And essentially, we end up accompanying the thing that's happening in the room. The thing that's happening in the room is that sort of singular or collective sleeping experience. You know, the, the sleeping mind of those people is the main thing. And we are providing a sort of a musical landscape for them to do that, for that to happen. And that dynamic is really wonderful because you have all those hundreds of people who are strangers and they come into a strange place and they decide to trust one another enough to go to sleep, which is a huge thing, huge. And um, we all go on that journey together overnight. And it's, it's a very special thing. It's, it was intimate for the people in the audience, I'm sure. For you, the repeated motifs, playing that thing, there's a sort of nakedness to doing that sort of thing. There's something very intimate about that. It must have been quite, I'm projecting this here, but it feels like it must have been quite a moving thing at the end to stand up from your piano and see what how you'd affected this audience in a way rather different to a bravura concert performance or an album playback or something how did that feel yeah it does it does feel i don't know transformative in some way i mean the thing about sleep is for us musicians it's intense in so many different ways um first of all it is like extreme sports i mean i'm, I'm my piano part is over 200 pages of sleep i mean that's that's mad i play the piano for more than 7 hours so it's a physically exhausting thing. So you have that sort of catharsis process at the end where you're just utterly shattered. Um, and then there's the kind of emotional aspect of, you know, watching all those people go through that process. And like I said, I mean, it's very much, it sort of builds a community overnight somehow. It's very odd. It's tempting to think that a work like that and things that have perhaps a similar well, that's got a very unique structure, I'm sure, that piece. But a, a, maybe a similar atmosphere to it. It's tempting to think that that might be loosely composed, if you get my meaning. How do you work on music that has that ephemeral or that nag? I mean, nagging in a good way, but that sort of repetitive, the, these motifs that come around and they're a, they are sonorous and perhaps soporific in a way, and perhaps pointfully so. Does that stuff get written? And how does that stuff get written, Max? It does get written. <laughs> he says with rolling eyes. The thing about sleep and, and actually about a lot of my work is that, you know, I want it to have a directness. And that's a very conscious decision. That was me sort of turning away from modernism when I was a student and going towards a language which had a kind of plain spoken quality. So I want it to arrive and feel simple. Well, that doesn't mean it is simple. Uh, it takes a lot of work to get to there. So, I mean, sleep has a lot of origin points. In music history terms, you know, the 31 sections of sleep mirror the 31 Goldberg variations, which were written by Bach to accompany in an insomniac count. Bach's music is based on a, a lament bass, which is a falling bass line. So I've taken this idea, this principle of a falling bass line, and built the pulsed piano music around that idea. And that is one strand of variations 
there's another strand of variations which alternates with that, which is vocal music. So these two strands are like woven together like DNA, sort of a spiral. Um, the vocal music is, in a way, a lullaby. And it's quite interesting. When I first played the vocal music to journalists when, you know, when the record was released, we had a very interesting example of the way people's biography affects what they hear. Because I had my A&R guy at DG, Deutsche Grammophon, said, oh, it sounds like a fugue subject. And then a guy from Mixmag said, oh, it sounds like Enya. And a journalist from Scotland said, oh, it sounds like a Celtic lullaby. And I was like, this is really interesting, you know, because it's none of those things. But, you know, people are sort of imprinting this material on, them, on you know, just for themselves. So great, great sort of solipsistic musical geography yeah, going on there. It, it was fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, so you have these two strands of material that alternate. And then there are some aspects of neuroscience, which I've brought into the piece. Uh, I consulted with a friend of mine, David Eagleman, who's a professor at Stanford, and was asking him a little bit about, you know, the impact of sonic objects on the sleeping mind. Basically, one of the things that you can do is you can support slow wave sleep, which is where memory consolidation happens. And you can do that with repeated low frequency tones. So cycles of low frequencies. For me, that was like winning the lottery because that's what I love doing anyway. So I was like, great, so I'm just gonna do my thing. So the other thing that sleep does is it uses a very specific spectrum. Um, it uses a very low frequency centered spectrum, which is actually uh, borrowed from the spectrum the unborn child hears inside the mother. So in other words, it's a spectrum that we've all experienced, but before we were a person, in a way, in a way, right? So it's very deep inside us. It's a kind of tabula rasa. It's a kind of taking away everything and going back to the beginning. And then during the last sort of hour and a half of sleep, the spectrum opens up. So you get more and more high frequencies. So it's almost like a sunrise or a sort of a birth, if you like, a sort of musical sunrise. So those are some of the ideas in sleep. But, you know, I don't want any of those to be sort of obvious. I just want them to, those are how I made the piece. But I want the piece to feel really simple. Well, it achieves those aims, but you're right, not without some probably teeth-grinding lunacy in the, right, in the composition of it, I'm sure. <laughs> teeth-grinding lunacy is how I spend my days, yeah. <sighs> talking there a little bit max about composition i'd love to know i'm sure our listeners would love to know your compositional building blocks whether it's pen and paper whether you're riffing on the piano whether you're remembering something that you dreamt even on the subject of sleep where does it start there are a lot of starting points for me and it it will depend on the kind of thing i'm trying to do i mean my background is in classical music and I started writing on pieces of paper. So I still do that because it's, for me, I find it 
the mo- the quickest way of getting an idea down, basically. So I have notebooks and pieces of paper everywhere. I play the piano. They're well hidden in this pristine environment. <laughs> There's nothing in here. You should you should see next door. It's like a blizzard. So pieces of paper. I play the piano. Uh, piano is my instrument, so I use the piano as a kind of a sketch pad as well. And then obviously all the machines. You know, if I'm working on a film or doing some electronic music or something, then I'll be using you know the computers and all the synthesizers and the tape machines and all the gubbins we have in here. You know, so it really depends what I'm doing. But I guess I'm thinking of, I'm sort of thinking about musical stuff pretty much all the time. As a kid, you know really even in very early childhood i i always had little tunes going around in my head and i i sort of didn't really think anything of it because i thought this was normal only later on i found out you know not everyone has like you know music going in their head all the time so i i sort of found my way to it really very organically you know it's just i just liked doing that were you musical enough then or were you you know trying to notate at that age in order to be able to write it down as notes in bars or were they were were you kind of trying not to forget a a hum (laughs) as you as you went about your 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 sort of short and your small days I suppose I thought of these bits of music in the way that I thought of my other toys like lego or building blocks or something you know I would I would play with a piece of music and then I'll put it down and the next day I'll pick it up again and play with it some more and you know so I just had this sort of in a way tactile relationship with musical objects sort of going on in my head uh, in in the same way that I would with my other toys you know I just treated it like that and again I just thought that was kind of normal really um, later on you know, I had piano lessons and things in, in, in childhood. And I guess in my teen years, I started to get sort of more serious about it. But yeah, it was just something... Uh, I mean, it just seemed obvious, really, that I, I would do that. You know, I, it was just what... You know, I didn't want to do anything else, basically. Does it feel... Do you feel... Is it possible to channel some of that childhood and childlike... You might say it's innocence... Yeah with it d- describing it do you feel i would say you you treat your music or your musical ideas like lego mm. anymore but d- is it is it is it important i wonder to treat some of these things lightly mm. rather than hold them like a precious ming vase yeah. there you can hold these wonderful ideas these wonderful musical concepts but hold them lightly some of them might slip through the net you might wake up and not remember them or you yeah. might not have that piece of paper to hand I wonder how that works with you. I think that's actually really important. I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been Jean Rouge who said that, you know, creative work is is essentially extending the sort of modality of childhood artificially into adulthood, you know. And I think that's really important. You know, I think especially as people working in the creative spheres, especially as they start to achieve some prominence or success or even the ability to make a living you know then it all starts to feel a bit serious you know and and actually that's really problematic um but you fear losing it i suppose well, you fear losing things you know and and all of this stuff um i mean i try to feel like a beginner all the time you know for me that's uh, 
for me, I always try to keep a kind of experimental attitude to everything, you know, a kind of what if. My writing process is, is sort of like composting, really. You know, I, I'm making things all the time, and most of them are kind of, I just sort of throw in the bin, but that bin is... How, how, how far are we going to go with this compost analogy? <laughs> exactly. Well, most of them... Stinks. Stinks. Most of, well, most of them, it's not that they're necessarily bad. It's just that they're not the right thing at the right moment. So I have piles and piles and piles of things which I haven't used. But that doesn't mean that they will never get used. Because actually, I'm a lot of the time, I'm trying to find ways to encounter them as though I hadn't written them so that I can sort of see them for what they are without there being that kind of emotional thing of, oh, I spent hours on that, you know. It must, I must, I've got, I've got to make it into something because it's like, you know. So I, I, I'm always trying to just uh, try to keep that kind of freshness and that feeling of discovering things. I also don't ex have any expectations that anyone else is going to like it. I think that's, for me, that's really important, you know, to, to sort of not think too much about, you know, what will someone say about this thing I'm doing? You know, I just, my assumption is that no one will ever hear it, to be honest. Don't know who's going to break the fact of your career to you, Max. Well, I'm, I sort of preserve the ability to delude myself as much as I possibly can, because I, I just find that, you know, the idea of, of people sort of, you know, there being sort of judgments about things. I, I, from, you'd be paralyzed if you thought about that. So I just prefer to focus only on the notes and to sort of deal with those in as best way I can, in a way that makes sense to me, and then forget about the consequences, if you like. <laughs> so there is this, I have in my head this kind of, these different pots, these different sort of hoppers of different ideas, of varying lengths of sort of fast tempo slow joyful things slow things lamentations and jigs and all sorts of different vibes of music and you work across so many different things from making orchestral and piano albums film soundtracks lending your music to films working with wayne mcgregor and ballet and kim jones and dior and, and runway shows do those sort of jars of that you've been pickling away, those compost heaps of ideas simmering away and getting getting rich, do you kind of delve into those pots for different ideas? It's kind of nice to have a stock pot of, of stuff going. But how, how do you how do you apportion ideas to each each individual discipline within within your kind of rich musical tapestry, I wonder? Well, I think it's horses for courses really. And it's just instinct, you know, I mean I I'm writing all the time. Each project has really only got a kind of dotted line around it, but they're all sort of part of the same material. You know, I'm just sort of writing constantly. And, yeah, it's an instinctive thing. You know, I, you look at something and somebody will have an idea, can you do whatever it is, you know, commission for something or some kind of collaboration or something, and then that's the sort of question mark. And then, you know, do I have an idea that can answer that question in some way? Is there something that I've sort of got bubbling away on the back burner or do I need to make something new or, you know, I'm, it's, it's just experimental really. I'm just trying things all the time and I'm interested to be surprised and interested to discover new ways of, yeah, shaping material and 
new ways of telling stories. sometimes feel in film music perhaps that music is commissioned to make something dramatic that isn't necessarily as dramatic as they might want it to be or you have to you have to push the thing over the hill slightly have you felt sometimes that you've been in that position or to yeah to, to lift something up by its bootstraps a little well I mean that's definitely one of the things that music can do and you know if you I don't know say you have a scene where it's supposed to be say exciting then I don't think it's necessarily a criticism of the film that the music can make it more exciting because that is literally what music can do, you know. So I think that's fine, you know. It's not to say, oh, the film's terrible and the music saved it, you know. It's not like that, you know. I mean, the reason we have music... In You're not the only one wearing a cape. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the reason, yeah, the reason we have music in films is because it, what it can do, you know. It can do things that other elements can't do, you know. It can affect our, the way we perceive a scene it can make time pass differently it can direct us to a different point of view you know puts us inside one character's head as opposed to someone else you know so it can do lots of stuff like that which are difficult to achieve by other means so yeah I mean I think you know for me the role of music in a film is it's something that is a process to be you know a process of discovery how can the music you know intelligently and thoughtfully and maybe even invisibly sort of lift up the material and that's quite interesting I think and I wanted just finally Max to bring it back to to where we're sitting and this this wonderful wonderful studio and art space and sort of shared space all of the things that go on under this handsome roof is this an instrument in itself I wonder for you is this is did you have you made a place with your partner where you your both your practices can breathe exceptionally easily and be creative and perhaps intersect as well is this is it very important if you found the kind of place here in the oxfordshire countryside by your design that is sort of breathes a lot of life into your creative process i wonder yeah it is um i mean it's interesting because we you know, we've been planning this place for a really long time and we planned it because we felt that, you know, if you had the right toolkit around you, it would make things sort of easier and it would be, could achieve our creative aims in a really simple kind of a way. And it totally has done that, which in a way we're sort of surprised by because, you know, you always have these plans and they don't necessarily work out but in this case, it it really has, you know. Um, it, you know, we're sitting in a studio. We can, I can, take a piece of music from scribbles on a piece of paper to a full, you know, Dolby Atmos cinema mix in this building with an orchestra having been recorded. I mean, that's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And uh, you know, I'm of a morning. You know, if we're recording a film. I can be sitting in the house having a cup of coffee with the kids at breakfast 
and I walk in here and there's like 50 people <laughs> ready to record. It's, it's bizarre, but I mean, it's so, it really does work. It, it's quite extraordinary. Well, thank you for welcoming us into this wonderful space. Um, and thanks for talking us through so many wonderful things from sleep. Thanks for letting us nose into your compost bins. Um, thanks for your time, Max Richter. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Max Richter and the team at Studio Richter Mar. A Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu. And Steph also edits the show. We will be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>